This episode, like every episode of The Dig, is produced in partnership with Jacobin Magazine. Jacobin is an incredible publication. You've probably seen a lot of what they've published online, but they also have a beautiful print magazine. It comes out quarterly and has well over 100 pages packed with illustrations, infographics, and some of the best graphic design in the country. Dig listeners can join 50,000 Jacobin subscribers developing socialist political thought and debate for just $15 a year. $15 gets you an entire year of Jacobin in print and access to the magazine's entire back catalog. If you've never subscribed to Jacobin before, you can access this deal by going to bit.ly slash digjacobin, all lowercase. That's bit.ly slash digjacobin. Welcome to The Dig, a podcast from Jacobin Magazine. My name is Daniel Denver, and I'm broadcasting from Providence, Rhode Island. In December, Masha Gessen, an American, Russian, and Jewish writer, faced an uproar in Germany over a New Yorker essay in which they compared Gaza to a Nazi-era Jewish ghetto. Gessen, whose family members were murdered by the Nazis, wrote, quote, the term open-air prison seems to have been coined in 2010 by David Cameron, the British foreign secretary who was then prime minister. Many human rights organizations that document conditions in Gaza have adopted the description. But as in the Jewish ghettos of occupied Europe, there are no prison guards. Gaza is policed not by the occupiers, but by a local force. Presumably, the more fitting term, ghetto, would have drawn fire for comparing the predicament of besieged Gazans to that of ghettoized Jews. It also would have given us the language to describe what is happening in Gaza now. The ghetto is being liquidated. Gessen had won the Hannah Arendt Prize for political thought, Arendt being the late legendary Jewish political philosopher who also was, ironically, an incisive critic of Zionism. The prize is funded by the Green Party-affiliated Heinrich Boll Foundation and the government of Bremen, both of which pulled out in protest of Gessen. Only weeks later, Germany declared its support for Israel at the International Court of Justice, as the latter faced down accusations of genocide lodged by South Africa. Germany, a nation that quickly rehabilitated its professional anti-Semitic executioners, a nation that never truly accounted for its genocide of the Herero and Namaqua, lent its full moral authority to Israel. Israel, of course, has since been found as possibly committing genocide as understood by the provisions of the 1948 Genocide Convention. This would be simply absurd if it were not also so obscene. Germany has without question become among the world's most ridiculous countries, a place where an unrivaled record of ethnic cleansing is credited towards moral authority on the question. Today's episode is my interview with Emily Disha Becker on how Germany has, in the name of fighting anti-Semitism, embraced a strange philo-Semitism and proxy Israeli nationalism, demonizing and suppressing expressions of Palestinian identity or anti-Zionism in the name of Holocaust remembrance. Left-wing Jews thus oftentimes find themselves being lectured about anti-Semitism by the descendants of the people who murdered the Jews. Meanwhile, Far-right politics are ascendant with the AFD party, or alternative for Germany, making terrifying gains in the polls fueled by an anti-migrant politics that's increasingly echoed across the political spectrum. Indeed, 
Even as most anti-Semitic incidents are committed by members of the far right, the German political establishment has joined the far-right AFD in scapegoating Arab and Muslim migrants for anti-Semitism. Germany's zealous commitment to anti-anti-Semitism, however, is that of a convert. Post-war German elites, as new left critics pointed out, were often holdovers from the Nazi era. The Holocaust for decades was not discussed much at all in public, and repentance for it was certainly not a cornerstone of national identity. Much of this started to change in the lead-up to German reunification, which took place within the lifetime of most people listening right now. Look back to 1985's Bitburg controversy, when West German Chancellor Helmut Kohl and American President Ronald Reagan visited the graves of German World War II veterans, prompting loud protests from Jews across the United States and Western Europe. Reagan and Kohl only added a stop at the Bergen-Belsen concentration camp to their itinerary after a truly enormous controversy had erupted. In West Germany, a debate broke out in the pages of daily papers, on the news, across politics and popular culture. How should the Holocaust be remembered, and what place does it have in Germany's history and identity? This debate was called the Historian's Dispute, though it concerned not only if the Holocaust was a unique event or to what degree Nazism was an understandable response to the Soviet Union, but also if Germans might rediscover, or not, sources of pride in their national community. Ultimately, Germany found its footing through the increasingly hysterical anti-antisemitism that revivified German nationalism by Israeli proxy that we see today. Ben maybe will discuss the historian's debate in more detail in his forthcoming Dig newsletter. Every single Dig newsletter, and they're really good, is posted alongside our vast archives at thedigradio.com. More to the point, every single supporter of the Dig at patreon.com slash the Dig gets that newsletter delivered to your email inbox. The Dig is available free to all because it is above all else a political education project, and we want everyone to listen, regardless of your ability or really even, to be honest, your inclination to pay. But the reason we can provide every episode for free with no paywall so that everyone can listen regardless of their ability or inclination to pay is because those of you listeners who can afford to contribute and want to contribute do so. Depending on how much you contribute and where you live, we also have books, tote bags, coffee mugs to mail you. So. If you appreciate what we do at The Dig and you want to support The Dig, please donate now to keep The Dig up and running strong. That's patreon.com slash The Dig. There is a link in the show notes. Please pause now, click it, contribute. Okay, here's Emily Dischebecker, a writer, organizer, and curator living in Berlin. She's the Germany director of Diaspora Alliance, an international organization dedicated to fighting anti-Semitism and its instrumentalization, as well as a researcher for Forensis Forensic Architecture. Emily Dischebecker, welcome to The Dig. Thank you. Let's start with a very basic overview just how bad in recent months has the suppression of pro-Palestine speech in the name of fighting anti-Semitism, how bad has it gotten in Germany? If, if I understand it correctly, it's normal for police to arrest protesters for saying things like free Palestine or from the river to the sea or just to straight up ban 
pro-Palestine demonstrations entirely. Meanwhile, there have been police raids of bookstores, coffee shops, social centers that have any sort of suspected affiliation with Palestine solidarity, all all while all sorts of speakers are banned from cultural events and media. And the media just undertakes this nonstop demonization of any critic of Israel. What what does the day-to-day suppression of speech look like for those of us who do not live in Germany? So I think the repression of Palestine solidarity, both in terms of speech and freedom of assembly, has been going on particularly for the last year and a half, two years. The The ban on demonstrations um, effectively started in 2022, if I'm not mistaken, and there was little uproar about that. But since October 7th, there has been, and in the initial period after October 7th, for a couple weeks, um, all demonstrations in solidarity with Palestine were effectively um, not permitted to take place in Berlin and in a couple of other cities, not across the board. It's not an actual law or rule. It's something that the police decides and weighs based on the threat of anti-Semitic statements being made. That's usually the justification for that. And so that has been happening, happened a lot throughout October. And since the end of October, demonstrations have been allowed to take place. That hasn't stopped the press from basically announcing in advance that there would be anti-Semitic demonstrations before they've even happened, referring to any Palestine solidarity and saying that the people who are about to demonstrate are uh, haters of Israel and that kind of thing. I do think that in the last few weeks and months, Palestinian voices have been heard for the first time in a long time in the German media. There has been some attempt by the media to include Palestinian voices who've largely been absent from the German public since, I would say, at least 2019, when uh, Germany's parliament passed a resolution, a legally non-binding resolution, declaring the methods and argumentation of the BDS movement to be anti-Semitic. And so because that affects a lot of Palestinians and people who are in solidarity with Palestine, those perspectives were largely absent from the media. I would say even before that, it's been a couple years where we no longer really hear from Palestinians. We speak about Palestinians. So lots of events will take place on the Middle East, on anti-Semitism, on BDS, on Israel-related anti-Semitism, without any Palestinian perspectives or perspectives of people in solidarity with Palestine or who have any understanding of the Palestinian position. So in the day-to-day, I think that in October, we really saw a wave of repression that we hadn't seen. The police, particularly in Berlin, in the um, neighborhood of Narkon, which has a significant Palestinian and Arab population. The police were very brutal and preemptively stopping anything that could look like a gathering of a few people. They were stopping people who were in kofia. They were um, stomping on candles for candlelight vigils that were taking place. They were tear gassing people, um, including children. The Berlin Senate advised schools not to allow any public display of Palestinian identity at all for children in schools. There was a video that circulated early on after October 7th of a teacher socking a young boy, a teenager, in the face on the playground during recess who who had pulled out a Palestinian flag. 
And so there was a level of repression that in some way made it feel like this was an extension of a kind of occupation almost in in, in Neukölln. That's how people who lived there, um, including Jews who lived there, felt that it was like an occupation dynamic where the police was there, there were even checkpoints and kind of preemptive scanning of people who had any display of Palestinian identity or solidarity with Palestinians. In November, Der Spiegel published this truly hysterical, rather lengthy story on Greta Thunberg, whose title and subtitle read, An Idol Loses Her Way. Has Greta Thunberg Betrayed the Climate Movement? Is Greta Thunberg anti-Semitic or just incredibly naive? There were an astonishing six writers sharing this byline of this, again, extremely long article that was basically just calling Greta an anti-Semite for supporting Palestinian liberation. What? What's the deal with the German media in particular? I think the Greta response has been um, quite embarrassing, I would say, because it's been there's been so many declarations of Greta has lost all relevance and she's completely discredited herself. And the question is, you know, vis-a-vis whom? It's this sort of kind of reflection of German megalomania that they think their disapproval would have ramifications for someone who is, you know, has an international profile and is moreover not trying to fight climate change in Germany, but globally. The German media has been fairly uncritical and not has not been fulfilling its mandate of being critical of, I would say, state policy when it comes to Germany's foreign policy vis-a-vis Israel. It's so-called Staatsraison, it's reason of state, that Israel's security is Germany's security, which was declared by former German Chancellor Angela Merkel in a speech in front of the Knesset in 2008, which was never ratified by parliament or had, has no actual official power. But the adoption of that um, has been fairly uncritical in terms of the German media's response to it. And so I think the Greta Thunberg obsession has various elements to it that are all, in my opinion, kind of embarrassing and unpleasant, in part because there's sort of the misogynistic element of this young woman, how foolish she is, how stupid she is. But it does reflect a complete failure to understand why someone in Greta's position might have the politics that she has. The idea that sort of anti-Semitism explains the world, which in some way mirrors the idea, you know, that Jewish control, (laughs) the anti-Semitic idea that Jewish control of everything explains the world, has reached sort of totalizing dimensions in that regard. So Greta Thunberg is no longer legible other than that she must be an anti-Semite or not know that she is anti-Semitic or feeding anti-Semitism by showing solidarity with Palestinians that is fairly consistent with the rest of her politics and fairly consistent with the movement that she is a part of who see themselves in solidarity with the oppressed and, you know, uh, have found a, a way to speak about Palestine and the issue that Palestinians face also in the context of global climate change and the colonization of land. So, yeah, the German media is fairly one-sided when it comes to the issue of Israel and Palestine and has not, and I think it's probably a little bit more how the U.S. media was 20 years ago. I think from what I've observed, the U.S. media has changed over the last 20 years in terms of actually featuring 
Palestinian perspectives and voices, and that being somewhat of a requirement when you're talking about Palestinians, that you speak with them. So the sort of overall trend that you, you know, you shouldn't speak about people without letting them speak for themselves also applies to Palestinians in the American context. And now Germany has sort of like a little bit delayed on the kind of diversity front, has started to, you know, understand that you can't have manals or all white panels, although those still happen all the time on talk shows, or that you need to have some approximation of a gender balance. But that hasn't applied to Palestinians. Palestinians are sort of exceptionalized outside of that. But there is, I think, Palestinians have a particular role in the in the German public sphere where the media um, has not been balanced or felt that Palestinians can be safely featured because their very existence poses a problem for Germany's idea about Israel, right? So they're sort of like, doesn't fit into the picture of a kind of redemption that Israel embodies for the, the narrative of Jews rising from the ashes after the German-led genocide against them and creating a state that is a flourishing democracy. Palestinians don't fit into that narrative, therefore there's no space for them. And that, I think, informs a little bit the media's narrative. And a general fear of doing things wrong, which has undermined critical discussions taking place in the media. I want to talk more about the present state of things later on, particularly the suppression of pro-Palestine speech and the entire kind of anti-anti-Semitism system. But, but first, I want to explain what German memory culture is and how it came about. I want us to get into that that much longer history. So to start off, how how was the Nazi regime and Holocaust remembered or not remembered in the West German Federal Republic and then in the East German GDR? What What was similar and different in these experiences? And then what was it about this memory and about the relationship to the murder of Jews, to the Shoah, that changed so dramatically how it did and when it did around the time of German reunification in in 1991, becoming what today is called German memory culture. So I'd have to go back to 1945 to explain a little bit also the kind of demographic shifts around Jewish existence in Germany after the Holocaust, because it's an important part of, of this shift also, the presence of Jews in Germany after 1945. In 1945, after the Holocaust, there were, for a couple years, briefly, up to 200,000 displaced Jews living on German territory. They were displaced from the camps, having survived death marches, or from, from the East, coming from the Soviet Union. And so, in these brief years there was a much bigger Jewish presence that by the early 1950s had gone from 200,000 to 30,000 Jews. So for most of the post-war era, there was a tiny Jewish presence in Germany. And the precarity of Jewish life, given how small its presence was, was very much felt. At the same time, there was also no real discussion or acknowledgement of the extent of the Holocaust, certainly not in public discourse. You didn't have a memory culture until, in fact, one of the major moments in the, in the formation of, of 
memory culture in, in Germany, in, in, in the Federal Republic of Germany, in West Germany, was in fact the televising of the Holocaust miniseries by ABC, which was shown in Germany. And that was sort of in the late 1970s, one of the first moments where there was a kind of popular engagement with the Holocaust. Of course, there was the Eichmann trial before, and there were various trials um, in the 1960s, the Auschwitz trials, but there wasn't a memory culture around the Holocaust in that way. So this started to change basically at the very tail end of the 1970s into the early 80s. What happened in the 1980s, in the last decade of Germany being separated into two countries, was that Germany had a president, Richard von Weizsäcker, who basically made a speech in 1985 that paved the way for acknowledging uh, German responsibility for the Holocaust and making that a part of the state's identity in some way. And so in that from the 19 mid 1980s till the early 90s when when the Soviet Union collapsed and and East Germany ceased to be a separate state that is sort of the origins of what I would say is when when memory culture became a thing there were efforts by civil society and progressives and Jews to create and to sustain a memory of the Holocaust and to make that part of a public discussion throughout this time. So what really changed when Germany was reunified is that the state took over this role of, of having a memory culture that was basically from, you know, from the state. And that became a big part of German identity after reunification. And that played an important role for German statecraft also because after reunification, Germany basically being greater Germany again um, was some cause for alarm amongst uh, some of the former allies, notably the UK, um, who had fought Germany in World War II. And to reassure the rest of the world that greater Germany was not a threat, neither in terms of its ambitions on the world stage nor to its Jewish population, memory culture became an important part of German soft power and German and Germany's image. In East Germany, you had a memory culture that was much more about around anti-fascism and basically treated West Germany as the state of the fascists and, and the Nazis and the Holocaust. And there was less of a specific emphasis on the Jewish victims of, of National Socialism than the overall victims of National Socialism. So that was part of a general anti-fascism. In the 90s, after reunification, there was public debates around building memorials, and memorials became a major issue for how would this memory culture look. And throughout the 90s, there were discussions about building what we now have, which is the monument for the murdered Jews of Europe in the center of Berlin, which is a huge memorial of like concrete blocks, a sea of concrete blocks, this kind of a labyrinth. And throughout the 90s, there was a very big public discussion, also a cantankerous one at times, because people were very divided, including the Jewish community, on how they felt about the memorialization and, and the project of building this memorial. So memory culture became, over time, uh, a way for the German state to identify itself as post-perpetrator and make that a part of its identity as, as, as a sort of state that had dealt with its crimes. And I think that Germany has enjoyed a reputation as a state that has 
done remarkable work in confronting its past in that way. What happened in the early 90s as well is that Germany basically invited Jews from the collapsed Soviet Union to come to Germany and stay here and become citizens. Um, and so there was a large influx of uh, Jews from the former Soviet Union to Germany, which expanded Jewish communities in various places, places where there had been no Jewish community at all, now had Jewish communities. And the population, the Jewish population in Germany grew from 30,000 to an estimated 200,000, of which there are about 100,000 or 120,000 who are official members of Jewish communities, so actually counted and represented in some way. So the relationship between Jews and, and, and the state also changed with that because Germany basically made it part of its identity as a reunified country to say, we are a safe place, a safe haven for Jews. Jews are welcome here. And also basically formalized its relationship with a treaty between the Zentralrat, the Central Committee for the Jews in Germany, and the German state in 2003. So the Zentralrat is now the sort of body representing all of Germany's Jewish communities vis-a-vis -vis the German state. It is also funded by the German Ministry of Interior. So the German state basically funds its Jewish representatives. And memory culture is a significant part of that relationship. The treaty that was signed in 2003 basically makes obliges Germany or Germany obliges itself to um, maintain the memory of the Holocaust. And so that has become an integral part of German politics and an identity politics since then. The relationship between the Federal Republic and Israel goes, goes all the way back to the 1950s, well before German culture had any sort of real place to think about the Holocaust. This was soon after Israel and the Federal Republic had both been founded when West Germany began paying reparations to Israel and later became a major supplier of military hardware uh, as well. In, in 1960, Chancellor Konrad Adenauer told David Ben-Gurion that Israel was, quote, a fortress of the West and, quote, I can already now tell you that we will help you. We will not leave you alone. And interestingly, though, at, at that time, Adenauer was very busy in Germany rehabilitating former Nazis, including his chief of staff, Hans Glubke, and describing German people as not so much the perpetrators that they would be identified as later on and met with memory culture, but really as fellow victims of Hitler who did the best that they could to save Jews when they could. Did this earlier period of German-Israeli state cooperation decades before the advent of contemporary German memory culture, did it in some way lay the groundwork or anticipate this anti-antisemitism driven hyper-Zionist memory culture that we see today? Because it's notably different because it's, it's more between states and because today's memory culture is above all else constantly loudly public, whereas this Cold War security cooperation was, I think, initially secret. I think it's important to, in, in discussing the kind of early relationship between the Federal Republic and Germany, the context of the Cold War is very important and the context in which Germany also was rehabilitated remarkably quickly in the kind of community of, of nations after World War II as a, as a direct result of the Cold War and needing West Germany as a bulwark 
against uh, the Soviet Union and Stalinism. So I think that the Adenauer uh, relationship with Israel and Germany's ability to rehabilitate itself in that context uh, are very closely interrelated. And obviously Adenauer was also a, a staunch anti-communist, as was Klopke, his chief of staff, who had um, played a role in the Nuremberg race laws and the dispossession of of Jews and uh, the forced renaming of Jews to have Jewish middle names under Hitler's rule. I just want to emphasize that that's like no small complicity. That's like real deal, high level Nazi stuff. Yeah, there was um, (laughs) a lot of very high level Nazis um, in the early Federal Republic and under Adenauer, who had not himself been a Nazi, but certainly I think felt that perhaps he had to contain the people in the in Germany who had been Nazis by integrating them into his government, that would be sort of the charitable interpretation of that. And obviously there were elements of that in U.S. policy too, vis-a-vis Nazi scientists and people who had been involved in things being brought in so that they wouldn't go over to the other side in the Cold War and that kind of thing. So that was that kind of thing was happening. But what's interesting about Adenauer, I think, in hindsight, precisely because Germany's relationship to Israel is always one that is discussed in Germany in terms of a moral response to the Holocaust, an obligation and a duty because of Germany's crimes, that that wasn't how Adenauer viewed his attempt to build strong ties with Israel very soon after the Holocaust. Germany started paying reparations, I think, in 1953 to Israel, which is eight years after um, the Holocaust and only five years after the founding of, of Israel after Israeli independence and uh, only four years after the founding of the German state. So practically very, very soon after, right? Like sort of like four years, a, a, one presidential term afterwards and, and, and we're very close friends or allies. That is remarkable. There's a recent book that was written by Daniel Mavecki called um, Whitewashing and State Building. That's about the German-Israeli relationship in the early 50s, which also references a famous interview that Adenauer gave on TV in the 60s after he was already retired, where he basically explained that he knew that he had to make peace with Israel or, or improve ties with Israel or have ties with Israel because world Jewry was very, very powerful and could otherwise punish Germany. And I think that that was certainly part of it. What Mavecki's book also shows is that the reparations were very important for Israel financially and, and far less significant for Germany in terms of its its economy and, and how painful that was. But it did help Israel crucially in the early years of its founding. You know, it was, it was a small sacrifice for Germany to basically find its way back into the community of nations, which it did through various things, funding the arts, funding culture, public international culture, Documenta, one of Germany's um, major cultural exports or, or things that it's well known for, to the major contemporary art exhibition that takes place every five years, which has also been the site or the topic of an anti-Semitism scandal last year that rocked Germany for several months, um, was also a project of that kind of um, image polishing on the world stage. And so I think that the relationship with Israel in the early period was both a combination of we are the West and we are in the Cold War on one side together and rehabilitating Germany by making good on its crimes. They're never really, in fact, doing that in any kind of, you know, perhaps meaningful financial way, as we know from the many people who were not compensated for crimes committed against them. 
an important, bizarre, truly bizarre, and very German piece of this story is a political current known as the Anti-Deutsch or Anti-Germans. The the Anti-Deutsch, from what I can gather from my reading, are this rather diverse political current or set of political currents that come out of Germany's anti-fascist radical left. Unlike anything we would see in an anti-fascist radical left anywhere on earth, it's extremely theoretically abstruse and in the name of fighting anti-Semitism and the specter of a revivified German nationalism, it positions itself as resolutely, bellicosely, combatively pro-Israel, pro-American, anti-Muslim, and definitely anti-Palestinian. Although philosophically, I think it draws inspiration more from the Frankfurt School than from you know, the the typical organs of, of neoconservative foreign policy or whatever. How did such a strange political force, again, unthinkable on the radical left anywhere else on earth, how did it come about three decades ago, around around the time that memory culture came about, around the reunification of East Germany and West Germany? The anti-Deutsch is always a popular subject with uh, American leftists. It is, um, <laughs> it is like a, it is so strange and, and hard for people to understand um, what it's about. And there are actually debates around. You know, there's sort of like what went wrong and what happened. Um, is it a particular German thing, or are there elements of of what happened with the anti-Deutsche that are also common to other left movements. But I'll get into that because I think it's an interesting question in terms of like beyond Germany, what is actually sort of structurally happens to a left that that goes down a kind of weaponization of virtue and niche knowledge. Um, I think that's a little bit what you were referring to with a theoretically abstruse. So the Anti-Deutsche are a phenomenon that started in the early 90s in response to reunification. And it was explicitly anti-nationalist anti-German nationalism. And it it was pro-Israel and also pro-American as a response to the sort of anti-imperialist German left of the of the 70s in particular, um, which had been quite explicitly and in fact actively involved with the Palestinian militant movements. You had various German West German militant movements, including Bada Meinhof and others who trained with the PLO or were involved in plane hijackings and and that kind of thing. And the sense that there was anti-Semitism among those West German leftists who were part of the Palestinian struggle or identified with it, I would certainly isn't pulled out of nowhere. Yeah. In 1976, far left German militants helped hijack a passenger plane and Jewish passengers were held hostage while non-Jewish passengers were released. There was also attacks on a Jewish old people's home and uh, various, various attacks in solidarity with the Palestinian cause that in fact targeted Jews. And so in response to the perceived anti-Semitism of part of the German left that were very openly pro-Palestinian and had a strange relationship, I think, to Jews, (laughs) Um, the Anti-Deutsche formed in response to reunification. And basically the idea that greater Germany and the resulting threat of nationalism, re-nationalism, and the first sort of slogan that emerged in demonstrations after reunification, from which the Anti-Deutsche then emerged, was Nie wieder Deutschland. 
never again Germany. So the, the original ethos, in my opinion, of the Anti-Deutsche is one that I would share because an opposition to German nationalism at that point and in now in, is, is something that I would, would, would share. And I think the slogan is still good, Nie wieder Deutschland. Every time I go outside in winter, I'm like, Nie wieder Deutschland, just like <laughs> resonates. <laughs> so sorry, the, the relationship with Israel was a response to solidarity with the Palestinians and the fact that Israel was in fact seen as the state of the Shoah survivors and that that's what Israel is and that the state is the personification of the Jews, right? And any opposition to the state is basically one that is based on objecting to the Jews having a state, a strong state, and one that can defend itself. Now, what becomes very peculiar about this is the kind of obvious proxy nationalism that anti-Deutsche display when it comes to Israel, right? Because if you're an anti-national movement, then the idea that there's sort of an exceptionalism where nationalism is good and ethno-nationalism is good is quite bizarre. And exceptionalizing Jews is also probably not a sign of, you know, having a normal or healthy relationship to Jews in general. And so the anti-Deutsche were initially a fringe group and there were various splits. I'm not an expert on this, but they have produced so much material, written material, that one could go down, you know, if you learn German or you could go down an anti-Deutsche rabbit hole for several weeks. <laughs> um, but basically what happened is that after 9-11, the anti-Deutsche took a turn or rather there was a split between the anti-Deutsche who became very anti-Muslim, Islamophobic, and openly racist. And that has been kind of the determining factor in, in how the anti-Deutsche, uh, what their role is in, in our politics. And I think it's had a debilitating, serious debilitating effect on the left, because they're not only a fringe movement, but a lot of the people who came up sort of culturally anti-Deutsche in the 90s, who may have been part of Antifa groups, which was all a very white German left culture, one must say. There's just absolutely almost no people of color and very few women actually among the anti-Deutsche. It is a sort of white German male geek club of people fighting about um, value theory, Marxism, and who can identify anti-Semitic tropes better than everybody else. So it becomes a sort of like weird, obsessive, pseudo-expertise knowledge and the people who have been reared in this, in a certain flattened reading of certain texts, because there are seminal texts that the anti-Deutsche refer to, Adorno is one of the thinkers and Moshe Postone is another one. He has one text on national socialism and anti-Semitism as the sort of defining feature of that, that I think the flattened reading of that is basically the manifesto of the anti-Deutsche. But so... Through the sort of general culture of anti-Deutsche, you have quite a few people in positions of, in the media and in culture who have power, and they have been very successful in kind of conflating both sort of in their over-identification with Jews, particularly in recent years. You have a phenomenon where if you criticize anti-anti-Semitism, that's effectively anti-Semitic. Or if you criticize an anti-German who's waving an Israeli flag, that's anti-Semitism. And it's an interesting thing because the idea that anti-Semitism doesn't just affect Jews, but anybody perceived as Jewish has kind of blurred the lines here. There's a kind of the proxy nationalism and the proxy pro-IDF, the proxy militarization that you see um, among anti-Deutsche 
plays a significant role in our political culture. Anti-Semitism commissioners and experts on anti-Semitism, there's quite a few anti-Deutsche among them. They're very well represented in the fields of <clears throat> Jewish studies. So Jewish studies is, is, a, is a field where there's a lot of anti-Deutsche, and that's an interesting aspect. I know this from Jews who are, work in Jewish studies, that the anti-Deutsche basically have kind of taken over the field in many universities, and that that's and Jews are treated as if they don't really understand the threat posed by left-wing anti-Semitism, which is one of the things that um, the anti-Deutsche are kind of obsessed with. It's always sort of through the lens of critiquing the left from a left position, but in fact, it no longer has any elements of, of any kind of left-wing movement. Um, and in fact, there's actually been just a very direct pipeline from anti-Deutsche publications and right-wing or center-right, but pretty right-wing publications that are owned by the Axel Springer company, which also owns Politico in the U.S., which uh, includes in its contracts for all its employees that Israel's right to exist is, is something that they embrace and that kind of thing. So there is, a, in German we say, a querfront of the formerly radical left and the right-wing when it comes to anti-anti-Semitism that particularly focuses on Palestinians as inherently anti-Semitic and Palestine solidarity or identifying with the Palestinian cause or supporting Palestinian rights as inherently anti-Semitic. And I think totally equating Palestinians or any anti-Zionists or non-Zionists with Nazis, um, that is now a kind of position that is very widespread and acceptable um, even though it obviously clearly relativizes German crimes against Jews to uh, make that equation. But that is sort of the, you know, the radicalization within the anti-Deutsche as they've grown kind of mainstream. Where does this leave the German radical left as as a whole? Is there is there space for a sort of anti-imperialism as we'd understand it on on the American left or on most lefts? I think the major problem with the anti-Deutsche's role and effect on the left has been that we have seen an increase in far-right politics, the rise of exclusionary nationalism and right-wing terror networks that expand into the police and intelligence services and have been involved in um, violent crimes against uh, people of color and migrants in the last two decades. And what we haven't seen is a concurrent rise in Antifa or anti-fascist activity, precisely because the anti-Deutsche were such a big part of the Antifa. But if you're going to be basically racist against Arabs or migrants of a Muslim background, or particularly Palestinians, that is going to undermine how effective an Antifa movement can be given Germany's current demographic realities, which have obviously also shifted significantly in the last few decades. So there is a German anti-imperialist uh, left that is fairly marginal. There's no sort of like, cent like people in positions of power. There is a political part of the left party, which has been in significant decline in the last few years and is really barely going to probably make the 5% threshold to get into parliament once we have federal elections. But there is a kind of anti-imperialist bloc there who were pro-Russia 
or or rather apologists for Putin, as people would commonly say. So a sort of like a little bit of a tanky, anti-imperialist tanky left. But they're anti-migrant too. They're also anti-migrant. That's right. And this is, uh, they have a new alliance, a, a new parliamentary alliance, or they will be running for elections. The Sarah Wagenknecht group. Yes, the Sarah Wagenknecht. Uh, they've just named themselves after the former left party chief, Sarah Wagenknecht. She is anti-immigrant, uh, and that is a part of the problem with, with her politics uh, in particular. But so... The rift between anti-imperialist, the sort of binary rift between anti-imperialist and anti-Deutsch has been very detrimental to the left in Germany. And the fact that in the current climate where we have a parliamentary party that is far-right, neo-fascist, the Alternative für Deutschland, the AfD, which is polling as the first party in three state elections that are happening this year in 2024, um, and that we don't have any kind of significant left. In fact, the votes from the left have gone to the AfD in many of the former East German states, where some of these elections are taking place now, 2024 state elections. That's a real, a real problem. Also, given the economic situation that we have, we're now in a recession, there's inflation, we have rising unemployment, all these elements, and no functional or strong left. And the Antideutsche, whose main project is rooting out migrant anti-Semitism and combating left-wing anti-Semitism in collusion with the right who are using this subject. So that is, yeah, the prospects are a little bit grim. Uh, indeed. <laughs> um, I want to ask that question that you put a pin in a few minutes back that you suggested. To what degree are the anti-Deutsche a problem unique to the German left and... And to what extent does it reflect, do they reflect problems that the left elsewhere should be paying attention to? So I think a, a left that is kind of obsessed with purist politics and being better at being radical left um, than everyone else, yeah, that, that that's something that could happen anywhere and obviously does happen in other places. I think that the sort of obsession with symbolic politics that both memory culture betrays and the anti-Deutsche also in their sort of like textual analysis of anti-Semitic tropes and the sort of meta anti-Semitism that they can detect everywhere um, is also something that can happen to the left, right? It's sort of like, these are things that splinter the left. These are elements that can happen anywhere that undermine the left. And I think one of the main issues, perhaps, or where Germany might be a kind of cautionary tale beyond just the Antideutsche, is the fact that the Antideutsche identifies so much also with memory culture as the main avenue for ensuring that Germany remains committed to being a democracy that protects its Jewish population is the sort of focus on on, on, on symbolic politics. And, and the fact that you can kind of proclaim your position on something and that that would be enough. So I take issue with this when the head of the Zentralrat, the Jewish community, says this. He he says that, you know, statements or what we call in German bekenntnis, a proclamations work to a certain extent, and that's what's expected. So we have developed a kind of political culture of positioning oneself and having to make proclamations, right? Like, 
the question of Israel's right to exist uh, and, and saying that you're committed to that or that you refuse anyone questioning that, these things are taken for granted and no longer actually mean what they mean. So I think that a kind of politics, a symbolic politics, being the main avenue of showing remorse, the limitations of that, I think that that is one of the things that can happen to any left and indeed does, this sort of obsession with positioning and and that kind of thing. I also think the politics of guilt, which actually doesn't ensure good politics or progressive politics, is, is also a lesson. Politics of guilt essentially create a blame economy that enables, you know, grifters um, and empowers people to basically take a position of claiming guilt for something and not really structurally changing much else. And that is one thing that I think is also makes it very difficult to have correctives when that is the politics of the left, right? Where it's like, oh, well, I've said the right thing, or I've, I am the best at saying the right thing. What is actually structurally changing? And then any critique of that becomes something that is anti the whole project. I think broadly, the question of both the anti-Deutsche's response and memory culture as a response to, to um, Germany's past that, that does apply to other places also is the question of what we are actually asking from a post-perpetrator society, essentially. That is where I think the German question has has lessons to offer for other places. I think it's also an interesting question of post-apartheid South Africa. And who decides what the lessons are? That's another thing that that is also in Germany has become quite vexed in that way, because it's quite clear that Germans get to decide what the lessons are and that Germans get to handpick which Jews they would like to listen to and have also appointed or basically have a relationship with an official body that represents Germany's Jews vis-a-vis Germans, and these are the people that they have to listen to. And that in the German context, the, the official Jewish community is, is, is very conservative politically. So the sort of absence of a kind of vibrant Jewish political life in Germany and the fact that people actually don't distinguish between the right and the left among Jews. Jews are just like a monolith. They are victims, former victims. That is one of the things that one can also find in other places. The relationship between Jews and Germans post-genocide is one that I think is instructive for many different places that are grappling with what reparations, what structural changes, who gets to speak on behalf of either group. Um, All these things, I think, are pretty relevant. And Germany is, in some way, given that it has created a kind of new exceptionalism out of its, you know, the sort of singularity of the German response to its crimes in in a world where most states do not acknowledge the crimes they've committed to the extent that Germans have or make it such a big part of their identity, um, that that can also have a kind of neo-supremacist element to it. That, I think, is something where Germany might be a bit of a cautionary tale for other places as movements aspire for recognition, essentially, of the crimes that have been committed from the state and, and what it would mean when the state, in fact, does acknowledge the crime. And then the demand for the acknowledgement is no longer, in fact, a demand from power, but a cornerstone of a state's power uh, and image correction. Yeah, that's that's all really interesting. It brings Wendy Brown's work on identity politics and Femi Taiwo's work on deference politics to, to mind. Um, a major turning point in the acceleration of Germany's 
increasingly wild anti-anti-Semitism politics, as you referenced earlier, came in 2019 when the Bundestag passed a resolution condemning BDS, boycott divestment sanctions, as a form of anti-Semitism. How did that resolution come about in the first place and why why did it ultimately pass? And then my understanding is that it was first introduced by the far-right AFD of all parties, very revealingly. And then if the resolution was merely a resolution, merely symbolic, why is it proven to be so consequential? So the Bundestag, basically all the centrist parties got together to pass a resolution in in 2019, which is not legally binding, which declared the methods and the argumentative structure, I think, of the BDS movement to be anti-Semitic. And it says actually that it unequivocally reminds us boycotting Israeli products unequivocally reminds us of the darkest chapter of German history. It also basically bases anti-Semitism or the understanding of anti-Semitism on the IRA definition of anti-Semitism. So that was also part of this um, resolution. How it happened is interesting and um, explains, I think, some of the some of the context. Basically, the IFD introduced a bill attempting to criminalize the BDS. And then the other parties sort of scrambled to come up with something because they can't be outdone on when it comes to fighting anti-Semitism by the neo-fascists. And this was the <laughs> result of that. Um, and that's just basically indicative of how German politics for the last few years has been shaped, which is that the agenda has been set by the right and the central parties are constantly scrambling to take on Um, the talking points set by the right, the agenda set by the right, especially around migration and anti-Semitism increasingly. And those two things also overlap, anti-anti-Semitism and anti-immigrant sentiments and politics. And so that is just one example of that. I think, you know, German history, um, apart from obviously um, (laughs) the Third Reich and the Final Solution, are sometimes just a series of accidents. This is, you know, everything seems to have a system and be done effectively, but that's absolutely one of the greatest false stereotypes in the world about Germans. So if I'm just as an example of some accidents, you know, the Berlin Wall came down basically because there was a press conference and uh, the East German Politburo secretary at this press conference where he was talking about various measures that people would be allowed to like leave East Germany now was asked by a journalist what will happen to the Berlin Wall and on his paper that he was reading from, there was no response to that. So he spontaneously was like, I guess we'll open it. And people rushed and, you know, started to tear down the wall. In 2015, when large number of uh, refugees, mostly from Syria and Iraq, came to Germany in the summer that is heralded as Mako, it's very generous summer of welcoming culture, as the Germans call it, the short summer, um, frankly. That was also based on a tweet by the ministry in charge of migrants, basically. Somebody who runs that Twitter account was like, yeah, you know, we're no longer going to do the Schengen process for people coming from Syria and Iraq, which means that we check which country they first entered in Europe, and that's where they would basically be assigned to for an asylum claim. So that led to hundreds of thousands of people streaming to Germany. Accidents. So the BDS resolution, in some way, seems to have accidentally triggered a kind of politics, because if you introduce a bill that says fighting anti-Semitism and doing something good for Jews, it's very hard to oppose it, obviously, specifically in Germany. And so there were lots of speeches by MPs who opposed the BDS resolution, but they ended up voting for it. And so a little, a sort of like 
accidental response to the IFD has in fact triggered something greater because the BDS resolution, while not being legally binding, has been over-enforced by the heads of institutions, particularly cultural institutions, who are so unsure of what is now anti-Semitic and what isn't. And the idea of how you actually check if somebody supports BDS, that that involves, in fact, in practice, scanning their social media as far back as 10 years or whatever, um, and that this is sort of like can become a kind of bottomless pursuit of of finding anything incriminating about somebody, all that was probably not the intention of the people who passed the BDS resolution and, in, and indeed voted on it, right? And people will always say in defense of the BDS resolution, including the anti-Semitism commissioner uh, of Germany, Felix Klein, he'll say, it's just an opinion. It's not legally binding. What are people complaining about? But in fact, it has had a huge impact on how anti-anti-Semitism is fought and has had a huge impact on our politics precisely because of the fact that you are not basically creating hard laws, but through administrative procedures, you know, laying down guidelines for how to do things. So various courts, including Germany's highest administrative court, have found that the BDS resolution or the various BDS resolution versions that also have been introduced on the municipal level are unconstitutional in practice because they violate freedom of expression or freedom of opinion. But that hasn't changed anything about this resolution or how it's basically enforced. So you have a kind of, I would say, playbook, unfortunately, for affecting policy without hard laws. Because if the BDS resolution was a hard law, it would be unconstitutional, according to the Scientific Advisory Committee of Germany's parliament, who wrote a paper on this in 2020. They're like, this couldn't be a law because it would be unconstitutional. It's not a law, and it's still implemented. So this has caused, I think, has weakened our democratic institutions. And, and that's the same thing in some way with the IRA uh, working definition of anti-Semitism, which is supposed to be a kind of advisory guideline for how to identify anti-Semitism, but is increasingly used as, as something that becomes de facto a hard law through its enforcement or through being put into legislation in various different contexts or becoming binding for universities. And you have to sort of declare that you'll abide by that. So this is, I think, a little bit the background to the BDS resolution and what it's wrought. We have in the last few weeks, I don't know if you've been following this, but there was um, an attempt to pass a clause that would make all funding for culture in Berlin dependent on the people applying, uh, signing that they are not doing anything anti-Semitic, according to the IRA, basically having to sort of pledge allegiance to the IRA definition of anti-Semitism. And there was a huge backlash against this, including from lawyers and legal scholars who have been pushing back more and more on this precisely, I think, because given the potential that the far right is really ascendant and has as a chance of actually coming to power, whether on the state level or in some kind of coalition government on the federal level, and that the kind of taboo on governing with them from other center-right parties is being eroded in public every day, um, and being proposed by newspaper editorials, like, hey, maybe you guys should do a coalition with the fascists or the neo-fascists. That is, I think, making people more worried about things that are chipping away at the sort of rule of law and 
and the idea that the Constitution has to be upheld and constitutional rights have to be upheld. And the idea that anti-Semitism poses such a threat that it in fact in some way constitutes a state of exception where we have to change our constitutional rights, that is now causing people to be alarmed who very much agree that fighting anti-Semitism is important, but don't want to chip away at our democratic foundations in that way. A big, very bizarre piece of this anti-anti-Semitism apparatus that you just briefly referenced are these federal and state anti-Semitism commissioners. And and I think also all sorts of institutions have their own anti-Semitism commissioners now, but I'm not, I don't quite follow. And Almost none of these anti-Semitism commissioners are Jewish, but their job is basically to declare what is and what is not anti-Semitic. What exactly are these people up to? Where do they come from? Who are they? What power do they hold? And how do they exercise that power? So the the phenomenon of the anti-Semitism commissioner is a fairly recent one. We had the first federal commissioner for anti-Semitism. And I think it's important to note that they're called Federal Commissioner Against Anti-Semitism and for Jewish Life, because I think it kind of embodies the fact that these things are basically equated, right? Jews, Jewish life is about fighting anti-Semitism and reduced to that, in fact, in, in this context. But the first anti-Semitism commissioner, the one that is uh, the federal one, Felix Klein, we've had one so far, he's still in that position, was appointed in 2018. And this was, in fact, in response to the demonstrations that took place in front of Berlin's Brandenburg Gate in response to Trump moving the U.S. embassy to Jerusalem in December 2017. There were demonstrations there. Israeli flags were burnt in the German media. These were described as burning the Star of David, which is obviously (laughs) true that it is on the flag, but they were burning the flag. And those demonstrations became kind of a major scandal, um, in part due to false reporting, which was uh, my first taste of being called an anti-Semite in in the German public. In 2017, during these demonstrations, it was reported in every big newspaper that the demonstrators were chanting death to the Jews for numerous minutes in front of the police. Thousands of people were chanting this. And this was reported in every major newspaper. Germany's Minister of Justice wrote a guest op-ed in Spiegel, Germany's major news magazine, saying that people who chant death to the Jews should be, you know, put in court or deported or whatever. So this sort of um, discussion that people need to be basically kicked out of Germany for anti-Semitism also has its roots in 2017 demonstrations there. This turned out to not, in fact, have happened. There was no thousands of people chanting death to the Jews. And I ended up investigating this simply because the kind of repertoire of chants at pro-Palestine demonstrations haven't really changed much as the sort of prospects for peace haven't really changed or nothing has really like evolved in that way. So death to the Jews is not one of that I've heard at demonstrations in uh, in Berlin. And um, so I started to look at the videos and, and in fact, there were videos by reporters that had like 800,000 views, a million views on, on Facebook who had reported this. And these are like two-hour boring video of a demonstration, but I couldn't hear Death to the Jews, not in German, not in Arabic. So I started to investigate and I basically found out that it was all based on one report who had reported this. 
10 days after that initial report. And the opening lead paragraph was precisely this. There's sort of thousands of people chanting this, their eyes glowing with rage. Some articles even juxtapose the sort of Christmas lights, the beautiful Christmas lights against the glowing rage in the eyes of these unhinged uh, anti-Semites. And uh, so I called the reporter and asked him, um, you know, you reported this 10 days ago. And he was like, no, I didn't. And I'm like, no, 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 it's right there. And he was like, oh, that must have been a mistake. That didn't happen. My editor must have, you know, misunderstood. And so that was basically it. He called me back then. And I'd also explained to him that people were alarmed by this. Jews were alarmed by this because what the media was also doing was interviewing Jews and saying, how do you feel about them yelling death to the Jews? Do you feel unsafe? And of course, people felt unsafe and said so. And so I told him, I'm like, you know, my family's alarmed by this. And so he called me back and he was like, I remember he said, you want to nail me to the cross. No. <laughs> That's what he said. I was like, we have n- we have never nailed anybody to the cross, sir. Um, but I also didn't publish his name or anything. Like I just wrote a sort of anatomy of how this was spread and it wasn't true. And there was a correction in the newspaper. But that journalist at some time in the early hours of the morning wrote in the comments underneath my article that obviously I was interested in relativizing anti-Semitism and some sort of like wild, you know, basically accusing me of anti-Semitism. But this was the first time that I was accused of anti-Semitism for that article, which was just like, this is what actually happened and how this was misreported. So these demonstrations and the reporting around them basically led to the appointment of Germany's first federal commissioner, against anti-Semitism and for Jewish life, not the other way around. And uh, since then, there has been a proliferation of anti-Semitism commissioners. So we have state-level anti-Semitism commissioners for almost, I think, 15 of the 16 states that make up the the Federal Republic have an anti-Semitism commissioner. But you also have anti-Semitism commissioners for the judiciary, for the police, for the prosecutor's office. So in Berlin, we currently have five anti-Semitism commissioners. We have the the Berlin city-state commissioner for anti-Semitism. Uh, the judiciary has one. I think the police has one. Then there's a random, like, one um, borough of Berlin, Lichtenberg, has an anti-Semitism commissioner. And then the Jewish community for Berlin also has an anti-Semitism commissioner who is not a state official. Um, so we have five anti-Semitism commissioners. But it's also now, I think, for cultural institutions, they expect cultural institutions to appoint somebody to deal specifically with cases of anti-Semitism. So yeah, so we have a lot of people working on anti-Semitism prevention too. And there's a lot of projects. I think a recent statistic buried in some report by the Ministries of Interior or whatever said that there were, I think, 750 projects to fight anti-Semitism in Germany on the federal level. And I think in terms of anti-Semitic, violent anti-Semitic cases for the same year where the 750 projects, I think it was 2021, there were something like I don't know, maybe 70 cases of anti-Semitic violence uh, in Germany. Not to say that that's not a little, but it is like 10 projects for one for one case of that. So the question of the efficacy of this is, is you know, certainly on the table. The anti-Semitism commissioners, one of them is a recent convert to Judaism, the anti-Semitism commissioner for Hamburg, uh, and the rest aren't. And I think maybe for uh, the state of Thüringen, he may be Jewish. I'm not sure if he's Jewish by family or converted. Um, I haven't looked into that because it's also not something that one really wants to do. But the 
anti-Semitism commissioner for Hamburg is known to be a convert because he has attacked Jews that he doesn't agree with as uh, not being representative of Jewish opinion. And these are fairly mainstream Jews that he's been attacking. And um, so in response to this, one of them said, well, you just converted to Judaism. And it's an interesting thing because I think the question of conversion to Judaism, it's obviously people convert to Judaism for many reasons. Mostly I would assume for familial reasons because of marriage between Jews and non-Jews and for religious reasons. But in the German context, you also have people who convert to Judaism and then sort of convert into Jewish trauma, right? It's sort of like they convert into persecution. So the, the anti-Semitism commissioner of Hamburg in his attacks on Jews that he doesn't agree with and saying that they don't represent mainstream Jews has also had also repeatedly said, we will no longer, we will never be called pigs again or whatever. And like, he's sort of sort of referencing like Nazi stereotypes about Jewish physiognomy. And I'm just like, well, you don't convert into that. Like, that's not, that's not your history, you know? So that's an element to consider about the anti-Semitism commissioners. I have to say that the Jewish community is supportive of anti-Semitism commissioners not being Jews because they say, and I think rightfully so, that anti-Semitism isn't something that only Jews should uh, have to deal with. It is something that the rest of society should also feel responsible for and grapple for. But the role of the anti-Semitism commissioners, I'm not uh, convinced that it's an effective way of combating anti-Semitism. And some of them are a little unhinged, I would say. The anti-Semitism commissioner for Hessen, the the state where Frankfurt is, Uwe Becker, no relation of mine, um, I must add, he wore an IDF uniform to carnival, right? So there's sort of very little attempt to uh, distinguish between Israel and Jews, and that is obviously part of part of the issue. And I think that none of the anti-Semitism commissioners um, have any actual expertise on anti-Semitism. The Berlin anti-Semitism commissioner, Samuel Salzborn, is anti-Deutsch and um, has written numerous books on anti-Semitism. But as a scholar, he's not taken seriously, not peer-reviewed, and um, he might sue me for this because Germans are litigious, especially when Jews um, <laughs> insult their credentials. Yeah, he's also uh, rabidly anti-Palestinian and tweeted that he was sitting on a train and people at the table next to him in the train restaurant said the word Palestine and he didn't know if he wanted to scream at them or get off the train. So these are the people who are tasked with fighting anti-Semitism. And in the case of the Berlin anti-Semitism commissioner, he is very into, you know, repression as a means of fighting anti-Semitism. So we have professional anti-Semitism. We have, they're, they're, they're appointed officials. And I think that actually the kind of who they report to isn't entirely clear, at least in the federal commissioner of anti-Semitism, Felix Klein, he is part of the Ministry of Interior. It's an interesting thing because the proliferation of the commissioners on anti-Semitism or fighting anti-Semitism has also sort of coincided with separating anti-Semitism from racism and other forms of bigotry. So this is very much one aspect of that, right? It's sort of like anti-Semitism has to be treated separately, has to be fought separately because it's entirely distinct from racism in the German context. And that has become, you know, if you disagree with that, then you're basically belittling anti-Semitism. And so the anti-Semitism commissioner, Felix Klein, has also said, I've heard him say this on stage, when explaining why anti-Semitism and racism are so distinct, he said, 
anti-Semitism is not a normal form of discrimination, right? So the hierarchization here the, of, 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 of suffering and of, of the level of threat is promulgated by the German state while the right is ascendant and while, you know, I would say racism is very deadly. Um, and indeed, statistically, there is a lot of racist violence and has also been obviously anti-Semitic violence anti-Semitic terror has been emanating from the right. If you look at the statistics, most anti-Semitic crimes are committed by the right, the vast majority, 85%. There are a bunch of threads I want to follow up with there. One is in terms of the sort of German philo-Semitism embodied, exemplified by these non-Jewish anti-Semitism commissioners. And one story that particularly stuck out to me was about Michael Bloom, the Baden-Württemberg anti-Semitism commissioner, who, again, is not Jewish. And I'm reading here from a story by Peter Curris in Jewish Currents that recounts an episode from March 2022. Curris reports, quote, with a miniature Torah in hand, he introduced a theory about the origins of anti-Semitism. He told the assembled audience that Jews are not a race, but rather part of an ancient school that brought literacy to the world, one whose legacy was passed down to Baden-Württemberg's own schools. It was this Jewish gift of literacy, he claimed, that seeded resentment, which grew into the hatred that would follow. That Bloom's audience was willing to accept this theory is unsurprising in the context of German philo-Semitism, a powerful current that unites otherwise disparate parts of Germany's political scene in a fierce loyalty to Israel and an affirmation of symbols of Judaism. You know, I, I'm familiar with, I guess, like regular American stereotypes that, that Jews are good at school or often become doctors or lawyers. But, but this is really something else. What is up with this, this wild German brand of philo-Semitism? Yeah, I think um, philo-Semitism is a form of dehumanizing Jews by exceptionalizing them. And you've uh, recounted a sort of esoteric <laughs> version of that that I think just shows also the complete lack of accountability for Germany's uh, anti-Semitism commissioners, including Michael Blume. I mean, he gets away with things that he shouldn't, in my opinion, get away with. Um, he referred to uh, Germany's version of Jewish Voice for Peace as allegedly Jewish, that kind of thing. And he gets away with deciding who is Jewish and who isn't, apparently. And that is part of the problem, that they are sort of like beyond reproach. You know, the anti-Semitism commissioners, including um, Michael Blume, they have projects that have very little bearing on 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 what I think makes sense um, for uh, Jewish life. Michael Blume has a project of police rabbis that he's trained, and he he celebrates this. I mean, the megalomania is wild. It's like uh, you know something out of the a Charlie Chaplin film, and you know which I'm not. I don't mean any Charlie Chaplin film, but the Great Dictator. There's something sort of like slapstick Mussolini esque about the sort of self-congratulatory behavior of some of these anti-Semitism commissioners. So the police rabbi program is very unclear what that would be good for. Is this for Jewish prisoners that you're planning to hold or um, for Jewish policemen? But in fact, the, the program of Michael Blume for the police rabbis is these rabbis are supposed to teach the police about anti-Semitism, which isn't usually something a rabbi does. There's also a 
a military rabbi program that has been heralded as a very important contribution to sort of normalizing the Jewish relationship to Germany's army. Um, and I think there was an appointment of, I'm not sure about the number, but 50 military rabbis. And there was a report in Ditat's newspaper a couple of years ago that had tried to find out how many Jewish soldiers there actually are for these 50 rabbis. And the army couldn't answer how many there were, but it was certainly less than 10 at that point. And then the Jewish press, the uh, the press that is the Zentralrats, um newspaper, the Jüdische Allgemeine, found a Jewish soldier to interview a couple months later and said, you know, very grateful for the rabbi program. This person is also converted to Judaism. So it doesn't really, you know, the idea that you'd have somebody who's converted to Judaism who's serving in the German army doesn't really do much to sort of affect the relationship that Jews historically have with German militarism. That's one of the elements where, you know, this does play a role if you are historically were persecuted as a Jew or not, and whether you can actually rehabilitate an institution that was involved in the murder of Jews. So these are the kinds of projects that the anti-Semitism commissioners, at least on the, you know, that are public, like philo-Semitism for what sometimes feels like imaginary Jews. And then the role that they have vis-a-vis actual Jews whose opinions might not fit into, you know, who might not actually be entirely grateful for philo-Semitism or enthusiasm for Israel, how that plays into the uh, anti-Semitism commissioners' roles. Because a number of these anti-Semitism commissioners have made, you know, attempts to also censor or stop Jews from speaking at public events if they are not Zionist, sufficiently Zionist. And so that is part of it. I think Felix Klein at one point did say that he wishes to ask Israeli leftists to be slightly more sensitive to Germany's sense of historical responsibility. I think this there's something about the role of being appointed to protect Jews that, yeah, it doesn't suit the people who have been appointed to these roles, or at least they seem to kind of lose it a little bit. Yeah. I mean, it seems like almost a disproportionate number of figures subjected to scrutiny or attack over Israel-related anti-Semitism have been Jewish. Most most recently, perhaps Masha Gessen, who committed the grave offense of comparing Israel's treatment of Palestinians to Germany's treatment of Jews in, in The New Yorker. And I believe Judith Butler was similarly called anti-Semitic by the, the major German newspaper Tag Spiegel, even, even Bernie Sanders, who who APAC unfortunately has lionized recently because of his unfortunate resistance to to calling for a ceasefire, he saw backlash in October and canceled events with the German Social Democrats on the basis of of pretty, you know, modest notes of solidarity with Palestinians. I think Bernie said something like, targeting civilians is a war crime no matter who does it. And as you mentioned, Felix Klein actually said that you know, leftist Israelis in Berlin need to need to be sensitive about about Germany's feelings about these matters. It's really astonishing. What what do you make of this particular emphasis on Gentile Germans or recently Gentile Germans policing Jews for alleged anti-Semitism? So I think this is a place where the anti-Deutsche have actually played a role in in shaping that because the maxim, which is true, that Jews could also be anti-Semitic and that the victims of anti-Semitism aren't 
always necessarily Jews, um, has informed this policy, sort of become like a, a kind of rote thing that people say when accusing Jews of anti-Semitism or themselves positioning themselves as the victims of anti-Semitism, despite not being Jewish themselves. That does feel like one of the sort of successful anti-Deutsche talking points that has been reduced to uh, something beyond its intentions. Jews have been disproportionately affected by accusations of anti-Semitism and cancellations of events over their uh, views on Israel and Palestine in in Germany in the last few years, and increasingly so. I mean, from the list that we keep, um, the organization that I work for, Diaspora Alliance, which is just the cases that we hear about, either in the press or through word of mouth, and that we can confirm. I looked at the the numbers for the last year, and I think that 80 to 90 percent of the people who have been canceled, censored, is actually the appropriate word, precisely because uh, these are state institutions that are canceling, are racialized people. And in the German context, I would say that Jews belong to the racialized, the, the sort of discourse around the whiteness of Jews that exists in the U.S. doesn't fully apply here. So of the 90% racialized people who've been canceled or affected by Israel-related cancellations, 30% are, are Jews. That's just in the in the in the cases that we've collected, and obviously, you know, certainly there's a lot of auto censorship and cancellations that go in advance to this. But I think that a lot of the the cultural institutions, German culture, is almost exclusively state funded, as compared to the U.S., where you have sort of you know culture that's funded by through philanthropy and private money more. So this is a main site where these cancellations are taking place, and so you have a lot of people who are internationally. Jews who who are from the U.S. or from other places or from Israel. And so I think that increasingly, in fact, the kind of profiling that goes into choosing whether you scroll through 10 years of Facebook posts, which is, you know, kind of a lot of work, is done based on assumptions about whether someone might be problematic or not. And that probably has started to not only include Palestinians and Arabs and people from Muslim-majority countries, but also increasingly Israelis who, you know, as artists often are, are not always on board with their state policies. Indeed, the idea of being critical of the state, is, you know, is is present in, in a lot of the artistic communities. And so Jews are disproportionately affected, um, certainly compared to the demographics. But it's also important in the German context to say, especially in Berlin. Berlin is kind of unique in the sense that it has its home to both the one of the largest Palestinian diasporas in Europe, if not the largest. And it's also home to, I would say, the biggest or, you know, the most central place where the Israeli left has immigrated in, in recent years. For the last 15 years, it's been a place where a lot of Israeli progressives have moved. So, where they also live in the same neighborhood a lot of the time in Narkan. A lot of left-wing Israelis live there, a couple thousand at least. And so this is a place where a community of, of Jews, many of them Israeli Jews, who've decided to leave Israel and Palestinians has emerged and is precisely grounded in kind of non- or anti-Zionist politics a lot of the time. And so that is a growing thorn in the side, both of the Jewish community here, um, who really have made a habit of appealing to the moral authority of the perpetrator heirs to settle their, you know, disputes or differences with Jews that 
don't share their politics on Israel and obviously other minorities who are not Zionists and certainly feel structurally excluded from Zionism and not uh, aren't, aren't going to be conditioned or browbeaten into embracing Zionism because of that. So that is one of the reasons that I think Jews are disproportionately targeted is because obviously they're also vocal on these things. In the last few months, there have been several high-profile Jews who have had their prizes taken away, obviously also lots of Palestinians, but that has been very present also in the media. The South African Jewish artist Candice Brights, who has been living and working in Germany for the last 20 years, she was doing a conference. She she was co-programming a conference together with Michael Rothberg, who is professor at UCLA, on German memory culture and mem- German memory culture debates. And that was canceled after October 7th. And Candice also had uh, an exhibition of hers canceled after a nasty article in Die Tats basically alleged things that weren't true, saying that she hadn't sufficiently distanced herself from Hamas or whatever, although she had done so on dozens of occasions, but she's critical of Israel's conduct. And um, so her major exhibition was canceled by the museum. And the museum said something that was really wild, in fact. I mean, it really encapsulates how thoughtless the, the, the German dogma has become. The, the statement on, on canceling Candice Brights' exhibition said that we will not show work from artists who don't recognize Hamas's crimes on October 7th as a Zivilisationsbruch, a, a breach of civilization, which is a term coined by the German Jewish historian Dandina to refer exclusively to the Holocaust. And we've just had a debate over several years that you cannot compare colonialism to the Holocaust. Um, And this has been raging in in the German press, but now Germans feel comfortable telling a Jewish artist that they can't show their work if they don't acknowledge that Hamas's crimes on October 7th are basically on par with the Holocaust. And that just passes without, you know, pretty much anybody batting an eyelid. I'm Aziz Rana, and you're listening to The Dig, a great place for analysis about where we are, how we got here, and what can be done. It's my favorite podcast, and you can support it at patreon.com. This episode of The Dig is brought to you by our listeners who support us at patreon.com and by Haymarket Books, which has loads of great left-wing titles, perfect for Dig listeners like you. One that you might like is Against Erasure, a photographic memory of Palestine before the Nakba, with a foreword by Mohammed El-Kurd. This unique, stunning collection of images of Palestine in the late 19th and early 20th centuries is a testament to the vibrancy of Palestinian society prior to occupation. With accompanying text in both English and Arabic, this beautiful hardback volume tells the story of a land full of people deeply connected to their homes. By recording life in Palestine prior to Israel's founding, This powerful book helps us refuse Zionist attempts to deny Palestinian existence. Find Against Erasure at haymarketbooks.org, where readers in the U.S. and U.K. receive free shipping on orders over $25 and £20, respectively. We've mentioned a few times that many Jewish Germans are German converts to Judaism, including apparently some number of rabbis. And and like you said, you know, don't want to judge individuals choice of conversion and it's uh but on a social systematic level it strikes me as strange and 
as you said, it's one thing to convert into a religion. It's another to convert into a traumatized, historically aggrieved identity. And this reminds me weirdly of a story I read in Haaretz a while back, that there's also a trend of white South African Afrikaners converting to Judaism and then becoming settlers in the West Bank. You just, like, truth stranger than fiction would be bad fiction because too on the nose. The presence of converts in in the German Jewish population isn't demographically substantial. Um, There are high-profile converts uh, in Germany, including one of the major rabbis of Walter Homolka, who's recently disgraced. But he was one of the most important rabbis in Germany. And and also in terms of power, he was, I think, maybe the only rabbi with a PhD. So if you wanted a a grant from the, you know, for Jewish studies, you needed a rabbi with a PhD, had to be on the committee. So Walter Homoika had an outsized role to play in progressive German Judaism, Reform Judaism, um, over the last 20 years, and was sort of the counterweight to the Zentralrat and the German uh, community in terms of uh, a Jewish infrastructure. He created the Avram Geiger Institute where rabbis are trained. So a convert basically training rabbis. And I think that in part, the discussion around conversion in Germany is a bit vexed and it gets quite ugly. But oftentimes converts are very active and very passionate about uh, being involved in their communities. And so you do have converts who also become rabbis, and then they convert other people and that kind of thing. So this is part of it. I think what's particular, as you mentioned, in the German context is the idea of converting into Jewish trauma or the association that being Jewish means that you have that family history. This history of German conversion, there's a very interesting book that was published a couple years ago by a psychoanalyst on conversion of Germans to Judaism since 1945. And one of the statistics in that book that was very interesting was that in 1948, three years after the end of the Holocaust, in the winter of 1948, was a winter where a lot of people starved in Germany, there was not enough food in Berlin, 3,000 people attempted to convert to Judaism because they thought that they would get more food benefits and immigration benefits. So the idea three years after the Holocaust that being Jewish was in some way beneficial already existed in the public imagination and that Jews were privileged or that one could, in fact, um, convert into that. Obviously, there's in the stories of converts frequently, as I learned from this book by the psychoanalyst, People who have a family history of Nazis and guilt as a result of that have have wanted to convert. I think that that's not demographically, doesn't play a big role, though, in terms of uh, who is counted as Jewish in this country. But it is a role where people are very active as a result of that. And, And again, the presence of rabbis who are converts and, you know, obviously also convert other converts is 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 maybe a little particular in the German context. You're familiar with the kind of hilarious and illustrative story of Jessica La Bombolera in the United States. Jessica La Bombolera, she she's uh, Jewish too, right? Uh, yeah. Yeah, I mean, it's a, you know, <laughs> I would be going out on a limb saying this, but I think that there are elements in the German context where the response from the Jewish community oftentimes to to Germans converting to Judaism is is one of 
that is similar to perhaps the response to Jess La Bombalera, right? You're sort of like very outspoken, performing stereotypes and claiming something while also policing that has happened in the German context. And I've also experienced that um, myself. And that is that is very strange. As we've referenced, I think, a couple of times, there's this entire discourse about anti-Semitism being so-called imported anti-Semitism. That is, that anti-Semitism is imported to Germany by migrants, namely migrants from the Arab and Muslim world. And I want to pause just to emphasize that this is entirely perverse in at least two ways. First, the vast majority, as you mentioned, the vast majority of anti-Semitic attacks in Germany are in fact committed by right-wing Germans at a time when the German far-right AFD party is rising terrifyingly rapidly in the polls. And the principal message then is, of course, that Germany is being invaded by migrants. Why is the German political establishment scapegoating migrants for an anti-Semitism problem that mostly comes from the German right and in doing so, legitimating and further mainstreaming the far right's anti-immigrant politics? What does this all reveal about just like generally how the German political establishment is relating to the ascendance of a powerful far-right domestic political force that in so many ways draws upon the country's Nazi legacy and is ostensibly something that the German political establishment opposes. I think that the discourse around imported anti-Semitism, there's a very strong element of projecting blame onto other people for anti-Semitism, obviously, that is has an alleviating function uh, in terms of the guilt for anti-Semitism or responsibility for it. People talk about German guilt all the time as, as some sort of major force for why Germans take anti-Semitism seriously, and I've always found that to be overstated. Actual guilt, obviously, in some individual cases, that might be the case, but we're definitely seeing, you know, German blame as a major element um, in in terms of how anti-Semitism is viewed. Blame of Palestinians and Arabs and Muslims. The imported anti-Semitism discourse um, has become very mainstream and normalized, and that's also in part, I think, because the official Jewish response to this has been to strengthen that discourse and to basically lend its moral authority to that framing. In the last few months, we've seen it, even on the anniversary of Kristallnacht, the numerous official Jewish officials from the Jewish community here said, you know, we're not worried about the right wing, we're worried about the immigrants. And um, that has been a, a significant change from previous Jewish community leaders who would never have spoken like that about other immigrants or other minorities in this country. Basically has coincided with the rise of the the far right in in parliament with the AFD who joined part of the Bundestag in 2017 basically coming to power on a wave of fear around the changing demographics in Germany after the um, wave of migration in the summer of 2015 and 2016. And that was, there was an early kind of moral panic, I would say, um, around an incident on New Year's Eve, New Year's Eve 2015 in Cologne, where young migrant men attacked women out in the streets. 
And um, this led to uh, a huge backlash about, uh, you know, the sexual predators who have come to this country. So various elements of prejudice coming together here, and then anti-Semitism is one of them. The police had, in fact, started to racially profile people from then on, and, and particularly North African men. So this is a, a response to demographic shift in Germany that has been taking place over the last few decades. And I think is the cause, uh, not the cause, but is the sort of white backlash and the kind of larger far-right great replacement stuff definitely plays into this. And we can see also that obviously Israel's leadership is also playing into that. Um, I think Hatzel in an interview or, or on TV, or I'm not sure what the context was a couple of days ago, also appealed to Europe and the US and said, you know, these hordes are going to come and destroy your country. And this is a battle for Western civilization. So that narrative has definitely sort of the 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 great replacement racism and the anti-anti-Semitism have definitely fused in the last uh, few months, even more than before. So the imported anti-Semitism thing has become a kind of normalized discourse and impression. And in fact, the centrist parties including our governing coalition, which is made up of the Social Democrats, the Green Party, and the neoliberals, have all been calling for deportations or kicking people out, expulsion for, for anti-Semites, right? And then the question of how you define what is anti-Semitic is obviously very relevant here. And there's a lot of laws that are on the books or um, various bills that are keep coming up that are trying to criminalize uh, or change uh, laws around anti-Semitism, which would make, you know, for example, be, you, that one could be stripped of citizenship for anti-Semitic uh, crimes, but then what is an anti-Semitic crime? Could be participating in a, a pro-Palestine demonstration be used against you? Various things, a sort of guilt by association thing that actually happens. The attempt to introduce that into into law is 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 almost a regular occurrence now. Like every couple of days, every couple of weeks, there's a new law. There was an attempt last week by the Christian Democrats to introduce a bill that would change the criminal code. And one of the things that is, has been suggested, and, and this hasn't gone to vote, is if you were at a demonstration where somebody else said something that was illegal and, and you didn't immediately disperse, then you would be charged with a serious criminal offense, which could and could face jail time. So these kinds of, this sort of guilt by association of being at a demonstration, it's also important to say the impression of imported anti-Semitism being a major factor in anti-Semitism also has to do with how anti-Semitism is classified. And there are various things that are now classified as anti-Semitic that weren't before, including from the river to the sea, including the term genocide. I mean, the police have stopped people from demonstrating, have threatened to stop demonstrations for the use of the term genocide, which is considered incitement against Jews. And even calls for ceasefire have been, the police has said you're not allowed to say stop the war and that kind of thing. So what is anti-Semitic and the impression that, that immigrants are a serious threat to Jews based on how anti-Semitism is classified is, is a major issue here. But if you look at anti-Semitic attacks, the right wing is overwhelmingly responsible for that. One difference, I think, from when Jews were a much smaller minority than they are now, and they're still a very small minority in Germany, um, but in the 
years before reunification and even in the early years after reunification. There was a spate of horrific crimes against migrants, racist murders and uh, arson attacks on refugee homes. And one of these, I believe in Rostock-Lichtenhagen in East Germany in the early 90s, the first person to show up at the scene of this arson attack on a home where people died, I think it was a Turkish family, was the head of the Jewish community then. He was the first person to show up. And it was, when I was a kid, it was very much understood that any xenophobic or racist incitement was also directed against Jews. And now there's been a kind of, the the sort of narrative of Judeo-Christian civilization, the offer um, of being a part of that retroactively also, and the right wing effectively um, changing its tune, part of the right wing, changing its tune from being openly anti-Semitic to being very pro-Israel while still anti-Semitic has definitely played into that. So this shift in in what it means to be anti-Semitic and the separation of racism and anti-Semitism has definitely played a role in separating or, or undermining solidarity between minorities in, in Germany and beyond. It's a, I think it's important in the German context to, to note that German demographics have changed considerably over the last uh, few generations. And in fact, the the very sort of demand for representation and acknowledgement of German minorities has obviously shifted as those communities have become German or have spent several decades, um, several generations of families from Turkey and um, the Arab world and beyond have moved to Germany and become part of the social fabric. So that demographic shift has also informed what is also, unfortunately, uh, a kind of competition for resources between Jews and other minorities from the German state when it comes to programming and things like that, because everything is essentially a question of state funding. And um something like 40% of under five-year-olds have a migration background, as we say, in Germany. So that is also part of the sort of like great replacement anxiety um, that the far right has been peddling quite successfully together with now shifting the focus of anti-Semitism from the right wing to immigrants. Part of what's happening also is that we're not just seeing how anti-Semitism is counted. And I have to say um, that Jews after October 7th in Germany are very afraid. Uh, a lot of Jews are very afraid of anti-Semitic attacks. There were anti-Semitic incidents and attacks. There was a Molotov cocktail on a synagogue in Berlin um, on October 18th and um, various incidents of Stars of David being painted on buildings where Jews uh, live and Israelis being, you know, spat on or attacked in um, parts of Berlin, these kinds of things have happened. And so there is, I would say, the precarity of Jewish life in Germany is very different from Jewish life in a place where it's kind of normal to be Jewish as it is in sort of like the bi-coastal places in the U.S. where, where there are significant Jewish populations that is very different here. And therefore, the relationship of the Jewish community in Germany toward Israel is also very different because the idea of having somewhere else to go is is very anchored in the sense of being safe here or not. And the, I, the fact that people have, in fact, 
throughout post-war decades been going to Israel and then coming back to Germany or having kind of dual citizenship, having another place to go is a huge part of of, of that, the, the German-Jewish relationship to Israel, which is, you know, the, the community here is overwhelmingly feels a, a close attachment to Israel. And also because Jewish life in Germany is so limiting if you are, in fact, a practicing Jew. There's not like many kosher restaurants. You cannot have a kind of Jewish life in the way that you would have in the U.S. or New York, also obviously only in certain places, but that doesn't exist in the German context. And so people who are uh, observant and, and have that relationship with Israel and they go to Israel to lead a normal life where, you know, you can have kosher restaurants and your Jewish holidays are observed and that kind of thing. So it's very much psychologically a, a big thing for German Jews that is is hard to understand for, you know, in, in that context. And the fact that Jews are a kind of protected minority, especially protected minority, is also specific to the German context. And I think um, if that wasn't happening at the expense of a, a rift with other minorities and stripping them of essential rights in the name of the safety of, of Jews, then, you know, this would be a different conversation. But that is, in fact, the reality now. Yeah, to underline it, it's not that it's not that Germany shouldn't be paying special attention to anti-Semitism or to the place of Jews in Germany. Germany certainly should be, but not in this twisted way. Yeah, I mean, I think Germany. <laughs> I don't think that Germans, non-Jewish Germans, should dictate how Jews should feel about Israel, and I don't think that you know, amplifying enmity between Arabs and Jews within Germany is something you're doing for the Jews or for, for, for German society or for German democracy. I think that the fact that the lessons of national socialism have in some way been reduced to the sort of never again Auschwitz, the exceptionalism, as opposed to the things like freedom of the art and freedom of opinion are legacies and are enshrined in our constitution as a response to national socialism and uh, fascism. So the fact that these are important uh, legacies of anti-fascism or ought to be and are now being chipped away at in the name of uh, protecting Jews is very troubling. It's very troubling also because the kind of backlash that one can anticipate coming from that someday is is very palpable also, right? The idea that Jewish fear is being used as a lubricant for German racism or for sort of autocratic tendencies, anti-democratic tendencies, and that Jews will be blamed for that is something that worries me a great deal. And I think the short-sightedness of that from politicians in particular who may not realize that that's what's happening is astonishing, um, precisely because the far right is just sitting on its hands waiting to, you know, go to the polls right now because the entire discourse publicly, the political conversations that are being, that are happening are an anti-migrant agenda pursued by the center-left and center-right parties and anti-Semitism does play a role in that, the perception of imported anti-Semitism and migration being a problem. There was um, a very explosive piece on on the uh, investigative news uh, platform, Correctif, a week or two ago about a secret conference in Potsdam by the far right, which also 
politicians from the Christian Democrats took place in, including um, some donors for the far right, where they discussed their plans to basically expel a million people of uh, foreign origin using the euphemism remigration. And so there has been also a response to that, which is large demonstrations against the AfD and discussions of trying to ban the AfD because Germany's constitution states that parties that are um, anti-democratic or a threat to the constitution can be banned. So these things are back on the table. But it is a kind of interesting hypocrisy also, and and one that I think uh, has meant that these demonstrations that have taken place in the last week are largely attended by white bourgeois Germans and not by the people who are actually affected by plans to expel them is because the centrist parties have been basically saying the same thing. I mean, the head of the Social Democrats, Germany's chancellor, uh, Olaf Scholz, he was on the cover of Spiegel in October, and the headline in German, they changed it slightly for the English, was, we must begin to deport in grand style, right? So this is a totally centrist, even left of center, the Green Party as well. It's all been about deportations, expulsions, you know, uh, this terminology. So... Um, Give it... Given that the AFD's project is essentially renovating German fascism for the 21st century, to what extent is the AFD either explicitly or more implicitly anti-Semitic? And to what degree have they, and also maybe German society more broadly, instead substituted Muslims for Jews as the despised minority, an anti-Semitic logic but applied to a different group? Or to what degree are these things kind of co-mingling and coexisting? I think that the IFD are very, very, very skilled at political communication and that the elements within that party that were more from the traditional extreme right, who were openly anti-Semitic, have changed their discourse, as many far-right movements in Europe have when it comes to being openly anti-Semitic. So that 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 is a common common development that the far right in Europe has undertaken. You could be anti-Semitic, but you have to be pro-Israel. And so that is evident. There are elements of the IFD that are outrageously revisionist when it comes to the Holocaust and have claims that Germany is sort of like that there is a cult of guilt that is oppressing Germans. This is the far right wing of the IFD. And this is sort of the right of the historian's debate sort of posture from the 80s. Precisely. So that's that exists and they and and it, I think it's important that they they play to that base too, but but overwhelmingly the IFD um, makes a show of caring about Jewish life precisely by constantly going against BDS post-colonial anti-Semitism and the likes. The, the IFD actually ran a Jewish convert in Neukölln as a candidate, and he ran under a make Jews, Juden aber normal, Jews but normal. Um, and so, and it was a whole thing against the sort of like cultural elite Jews, the left Jews. And uh, so that, they, they, they do this sort of kind of being entirely outrageous in that way. And obviously they're, they're, their rise to power over the last five to six years has been one of, I think, intentionally kind of creating outrage and riding on the uh, attention wave, you know. So, and then the the center left is always pointing to their hypocrisy and how outraged they are, and that's exactly what they want, right? That's how they they signal to their base. So occasionally there will be 
things that are obviously sort of like more outrageously revisionist, particularly about the role of the Holocaust in memory culture and German nationalism. But in general, I think that they play that game very wisely to not actually be overtly anti-Semitic in this way by making fighting anti-Semitism a big part. And of course, only the part that relates to Israel-related anti-Semitism. I think the, the question of what role other minorities have taken is a very interesting one and, a, and one that is very controversial in the German context. But I think if you look at the sort of structure of the resentment that existed against Jews um, and that exists against minorities, there are elements that obviously, you know, seem to have uh, some continuity. And obviously they wouldn't be entirely the same thing because anti-Semitism has its specific elements that that you won't find in, in other things. But the sort of structure of resentment, the idea that, you know, there's sort of fifth columnists who um, maintain their own way of life, who are um, parasites on the German state, you know, benefiting from social be uh, welfare, who uh, that kind of thing. Sort of idea of a parallel society, that's a term that's used frequently in the German context. And then the idea of guilt by association. We have this whole debate around clan criminality in Germany, which is Arab families, large families, where the entire family is considered by the media and and the police. There's a sort of sensationalism and alarmism about uh, organized crime by, by big families. Some of these things are very, you know, structurally, to me, feels quite similar to anti-Semitism in the past. So it's certainly not cost anyone anything. Nobody's lost a job for being racist against Palestinians in Germany or suffered any career uh, repercussions at all. In fact, you can say pretty much anything and get away with it all the time, including saying that, you know, Gaza needs to be dried out and there are no innocents in Gaza. These are headlines that are in the German newspaper. In fact, that headline, there are no innocents in Gaza, was run in the the Yudisha Agamayna, the newspaper of the Jewish, uh, the Central Council of the Jews last week. It was authored by a non-Jew, Tobias Huch, but he published it, you know, it's sort of like, why is it being published in the in the in the official newspaper of the Central Council of the Jews? And uh, obviously, that's you could um, sue him for that because it's possibly in contravention of our uh, laws on incitement and uh, dehumanizing language um, because we have different free speech uh, laws than in the U.S. We have limitations. Not only does Germany have a large Arab and Muslim population. It has, I think Berlin has, I think, the largest Palestinian community in all of Europe. And it's really something that the government essentially tells, especially schools, tells German Palestinians that their national identity is is prohibited. In terms of how how Arab and Muslim Germans navigate all this, I found the work of, of Esra Azurek really interesting. She's the author of this book, Subcontractors of Guilt, Holocaust Memory and Muslim Belonging in Post-War Germany. And it's really striking. It's about, she, she describes how Muslims participate in these German acculturation education programs that, that bring migrants to tour death camps. And the crazy thing is these migrants, when they visit these death camps, they're absolutely horrified, astounded, sickened by the horrors that they're learning about. But 
when they identify with the victims of the Holocaust, either because they relate it to their own experience under repressive regimes in Syria or wherever, or wonder whether whether Germans would try to exterminate them too one day, the program leaders absolutely freak out because the Arab migrants are, are in fact supposed to identify not as potential victims, but as potential perpetrators. What is going on here? And what's revealed by what's going on here with migrants being declared in Ozirek's words to have the the wrong emotions? Yeah, Ezra Ozirek's work is uh, very important to uh, researching this um, phenomenon of what the expectations are for migrants vis-a-vis the lessons of German history. I think you can become German in the sense of inheriting the burden of the past, but never the privilege of belonging in some way. And that's become uh, more explicit in the last few months in particular. As a non-ethnic German, you have to identify with the perpetrators and not with the victims in that way. That is definitely an expectation politically. And one of the ways in which I think continuities of German resentment towards minorities is is effectively undermined for people to um, acknowledge and recognize that. The fact that I think Arabs are a particularly maligned minority in, in the German context obviously plays a big role in this and has been very explicit in the last few months with German politicians, including Germany's president, saying that people with Arab roots really need to distance themselves from Hamas and this sort of like actual collective guilt thing being really played out vis-a-vis Arabs in general, as if sort of projecting the idea of, well, there was collective guilt for Germans, so now there's collective guilt for Arabs. But the the role that the memory complex plays in this is is precisely that, I think, that you're you, you have to not only identify with the perpetrators, but you have to identify as a potential perpetrator. And that's sort of like, I think, what's really the, the perverse dimension of, of this is that Germans have the sort of moral superiority of having already committed genocide against Jews and everybody else is sort of potentially um, or imminently going to be genocidal against Jews. And that is sort of how Palestinians are also understood to be motivated. That that anti-Semitism is a major motivating factor in their resistance to um, the occupation and that kind of thing. So that plays such a central role in the in the debates here. The, that assumption is taken for granted. That that's just that's it. And Palestinians will say, "Well, we would resist, you know, anyone uh, occupying us." And and it is a sort of our misfortune that 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 we're occupied by Jews and that this plays such a central role in that. Um, but that is accepted widely accepted as motivating Palestine solidarity. That it's basically hatred of Jews. Anti-anti-Semitism politics is is also about rejecting any connection between European and specifically German colonialism and the Holocaust. In one sense, this can be about rejecting the context of inter-imperialist rivalry that precipitated much of Nazi politics and its perceived need for Lebensraum to, to the East. And it's also more more specifically, in the case of German colonialism, a prescription on not only making connections that look forward from the Holocaust to the Nakba, but also a prescription on looking 
backward toward Namibia, where the German colonial army killed tens of thousands of Herero and Nama people between 1904 and 1908. We were just reminded of this when Namibia really perfectly and eloquently attacked Germany for supporting Israel against South Africa's genocide application before before the International Court of Justice. How has the German political establishment responded to demands that it memorialize and make reparations for its African genocide? And, and why is it so important for the German political establishment to remove Nazism and the Holocaust from its very real and rather obvious historical contexts of, of inter-imperial and colonial conflict, and just like more generally of modern, of the modern capitalist imperialist West. So there's been a very heated debate in the German uh, media for the last few years around comparisons between colonial crimes and the Holocaust. And this is interesting because this has obviously been the subject of scholarly debate for at least two decades among scholars of genocide and scholars of the Holocaust. But then in its sort of flattened version in the German newspaper debates, it becomes a, just a binary question, right? Sort of the, the, the distinction between comparison and equation is collapsed. And so any comparison becomes a relativization of the Holocaust because the Holocaust is singular and nothing can be compared to it, even if you're in fact just comparing elements of these various crimes, including perhaps the fact that there's a common perpetrator in the context of these two, the genocide of the Herero and Nama and the Holocaust. It's interesting because the people who are demanding acknowledgement and reparations for German colonial crimes are obviously asking for Germany to do more historical reflection and not trying to detract, I think, from the Holocaust. But it's always warded off as being something that is trying to detract from German crimes against the Holocaust that, in fact, bears the threat of diminuizing the crimes and forgetting them. So that is has been overwhelmingly the unfortunately lame response to these conversations that have been happening for two decades in a much more interesting format. The idea of more accountability and not less accountability. There's an interesting anecdote that I read about the German envoy to Namibia um, meeting with the descendants of the Herero and Nama tribes. They have a, they're called like, I think the technical committee of the survivors or something like that. And they met with the German envoy to Namibia maybe four years ago, three or four years ago, while these discussions around reparations were happening between the Namibian and the German government. And the committee of the survivors' families met with the envoy and complained that the German government is negotiating only directly with the Namibian government and not speaking to them. The envoy said, you know, we only negotiate between states and the committee for the over Herrero and Nama responded, well, no, you actually did, you know, the Jewish Claims Committee, you did directly negotiate with them. And the German envoy apparently started screaming at them and said, you know, you may not compare the Holocaust to these crimes and yelled at them. And then they wanted to leave because they were offended. And there was some incident with one of the German guards at the embassy, like mistreating them. It's sort of like 
a kind of dry version of this was told. And then I heard the story from um, people who were present during these negotiations. But I think that sort of encapsulates a little bit the German response, right? You're, you're, you're dealing with um, the families of the, of, of, uh, of the survivors of a genocide and are yelling at them that they can't compare what happened to them to the Holocaust. And so I think that uh, the particular disinterest and contempt vis-a-vis people who are calling for accountability and reparations also for this first genocide of the 20th century committed by the Germans. The response to that is like, from my perspective, one where it's like, no, no, we've actually done enough and we were not willing to do any more. And that's a kind of um, self-victimization, in fact, of Germans who are, you know, or of the German state saying, well, we've done so much and we've taken so much guilt onto ourselves. We can't possibly take on any more, but that's done in the name of like, actually um, maintaining the singularity of the Holocaust, as if this is something that you're doing for the victims of the Holocaust, as opposed to for the, you know, sake of the heirs of the perpetrators and the state. Um, so the question of the Namibian genocide is, is is central. And it was very interesting to see that South Africa presented its case um, at the ICJ against uh, Israel on the anniversary of the German genocide. Uh, against the over Herrera Nama people. And that had a very symbolic weight. And the sort of response to that brought together, like it was as if sort of the German newspaper debates that seem so completely devoid of reality, in fact, have become the reality on the world stage. Where now Germany is actually, there's a significant awareness in parts of the world that are largely known as the global South in our discourse are very aware of German hypocrisy when it comes to colonial crimes and in kind of blocking accountability for Israel's crimes in Gaza today. And that is um, pretty strange. Yeah, and it's, it's worth noting here that Namibia only gained its independence from apartheid South Africa after SWAPO waged an armed struggle backed by Angola, Cuba, and the USSR at a time when the U.S. and Israel were amongst apartheid South Africa's most important allies. They're just so many layered echoes of so much history right now. As we discussed earlier, Masha Gessen's crime was their comparison of Gaza to Jewish ghettos, a comparison that they make in quite eloquent and comprehensive detail. And as you just mentioned, there's this part of this total kind of prohibition on comparison comparing the Holocaust to anything, that it must be utterly unique and thus exist really outside of history. What does never again mean if nothing can be compared to the Shoah? And what alternatively might or perhaps should never again mean? It's an interesting question of like, particularly who decides what the lessons of the crime are. And the idea that the perpetrators get to decide what the lessons of the crime are um, strikes me as uh, <laughs> should at least be controversial, but it isn't, in fact, in, in this context. I think that the never again mantra slogan, and I mentioned this earlier, I think, that they're sort of reducing the exceptionalism of the Holocaust to the the specific uh, you know, industrial killing and Auschwitz as a symbol of that has obscured what lessons we might learn from other elements of national socialist rule, including the rise of fascism, how a democratic system can be co-opted, can be, you know, turned into a dictatorship. What are the sort of 
for signs of scapegoating um, minorities and all things that seem particularly relevant today. We talked about this earlier, the sort of what is counted as anti-Semitic, that that has a role to play in how anti-Semitism is perceived and, and where it emanates from. And this is an interesting detail from a, a report um, that we um, have been working on, a research report into the kind of main anti-Semitism watchdog organization in Germany called RIAS, kind of a counterpart to the ADL, but it specifically only deals with anti-Semitism. Their statistics are very nebulous and it's unclear what actually any incident is actually referring to because they give very little information in their chronology of anti-Semitic cases. But we have looked into and identified what they're actually referring to. And one of the cases in their chronology of anti-Semitism was a speaker who spoke in front of the parliament of Thuringen, one of the German East German states, on the anniversary of the liberation of Auschwitz, which is tomorrow, or rather whenever we, um, whenever this broadcast will have recently happened, and um, spoke about the lessons of Auschwitz and what never, the lessons of the Holocaust and what never again means. And he said that you cannot reduce the lessons of never again to Auschwitz, but rather the path to Auschwitz begins much earlier. And the lessons of that, nobody is immune to those lessons of how these things start, the path of fascism and exclusionary nationalism leading to something as sort of exceptionally, cataclysmically violent and destructive as Auschwitz and industrial murder. And he said in this comment, in this speech, not even Israel is immune to these lessons. Now, the statistics by our anti-Semitism watchdog group just said a speaker in the parliament in Turingen compared Israel to the Nazis, anti-Semitic, according to the IRA. And so that was counted as an anti-Semitic incident. The man who said this is, in fact, Israel's most well-known historian of German Jewish history, uh, Moshe Zimmermann. And so it's an interesting thing that uh, a German Jew, that he would say what he thinks the lessons are of Auschwitz, but then this would be then sort of obscured and then classified as anti-Semitic by a German watchdog group, I think kind of encapsulates where things have gone wrong on the on the never again front. I think Masha Gessen's peace and provocation in this instance, you know, that was a major, major incident here, precisely because they are um, so well-versed and clear on why they made that comparison. And in the German context, nobody had ever compared Israel's actions to those of Nazis and then not sort of apologize or walked it back as soon as they were attacked. And the fact that they doubled down on the specificity of the comparison, right? And explained that comparisons are also there to establish the distinctions and differences. <laughs> it's sort of like a way of organizing information if you're interested in critically thinking about things and learning from them. Um, that truly was unexpected. And the institution that had decided to withdraw from the prize ceremony for the Hannah Arendt Prize that Masha was um, going to be awarded didn't in fact know how to respond to to that argumentation at all. And the fact that they were very clear on why they were making this comparison and weren't just 
apologizing and and taking it all back because that's what Germans expect. They school people and then they take it back and that's how these things work and there's no legitimate discussion beyond that. So that was a very interesting episode in in the in the public discourse to see how entirely insecure <laughs> these um people who run the Heinrich Böll Foundation were. They were on stage with uh, Masha Gessen after the whole debacle and they were so mincing their words uncomfortable and Masha Gessen was very confident clearly has you know <laughs> immense knowledge and didn't make a sloppy mistake but an intentional analogy based on their reading of the situation and their knowledge of Jewish history it was truly masterful and badass um also profoundly ironic that it's the Hannah Arendt award for those listeners who've not read Hannah Arendt's writing on Zionism. Uh, Susan Nyman, the philosopher who runs the Einstein Forum in Potsdam here, has pointed out on several occasions in the last few years that Hannah Arendt would um, be cancelled in Germany and has also um, been scorned, in fact, by Felix Klein, the anti-Semitism commissioner for that, publicly scorned and attacked for that. And then I think the Masha Gessen episode certainly proved that... Uh, <laughs> <laughs> very clearly. Over the past decade plus, Germany played the lead role in crushing Syriza in, in Greece and really the left across much of Southern Europe. And it was that crushing of a left-wing alternative to austerity in Europe, I think. I think it's clear that this was the key event that precipitated the rise of the far right and fascism across the continent. And Germany, of course, has long since imposed austerity on its own working class in the name of protecting German competitiveness. So I think in some way, in some fundamental functional way, the German political establishment cannot recognize the relationship between neoliberalism and the growth of the far right that they claim to abhor. Meanwhile, as we touched on at the top of the interview or near the top of the interview, the German left is in a state of disarray, collapse, division with whatever new energy there is with the Sarah Wagenknecht group being this very German, very bizarre anti-migrant uh, left that's attempting to use anti-migrant politics as a way to cut into the AFD's vote. Where do you think things are headed? Is Is a future AFD government inevitable or is there some less dystopian exit from all of these extremely depressing contradictions of German politics. Fortunately or unfortunately, perhaps more likely, German politics also don't exist in a vacuum and the developments beyond Germany's borders in terms of the success, electoral success of far-right parties also will have a bearing on what happens in Germany. And so, you know, we have European Parliament uh, elections this year, the fate of what happens in France um, and in various other places, that, that'll play a role here. And so to, the trend of illiberal democracy, I don't think that Germany will be immune to that if that's where everywhere else is going. Um, and I do think that Germany becoming a place like Hungary or, you know, Poland under the PIS um, would have ramifications far beyond German politics. 
both because Germany plays such a central role in the migration policy of the EU as the sort of biggest economy in Europe and as the sort of moral bulwark, right? So if Germany says it's okay to drown migrants, then it's okay to drown migrants um, has been the rule effectively. So the German role on that will have ramifications for, for many of these things. I have a hard time worrying only about the AfD's rise precisely because the Christian Democrats under the current leadership of Friedrich Merz, who uh, took over after uh, Angela Merkel, has been so similar to the AfD in so much of his demagoguery and populism and his combination of uh, inciting racism and xenophobia using uh, resentment from austerity politics that he and his party have had a central role in. So I'm very worried about where this is headed. And and I'm also worried how much of this is going to be blamed on Jews, in particular when the combination of anti-migration and anti-anti-Semitism that special... <laughs> cocktail um, is is that that, that the fact that anti-Semitism is playing such a central role in, in the anti-migration discourse and that f- Jewish fear is being used as a excuse for undermining, you know, constitutional rights that are basically now being discussed as uh, posing a problem for effectively fighting anti-Semitism. So the right to assembly is is uh, is under threat freedom of speech is under threat. All these things are now being discussed in a way which reminds me of like post 9-11 US, right? Where it's like, oh, let's discuss if torture actually works or not. Or like, do we need these rules? And it's like, no, I think we should actually maybe stick with um, what we've got. I mean, it's an interesting thing that I think being on the left, being in the position of trying to uh, explain to liberals that liberal democracy works this way and that this is what it requires to defend that, um, that's a kind of odd position to be in, right? Where it's like, we're harping on the rule of law, we're harping on international law and all these things that are basically under attack from those center drifted off to the right parties. Um, And I think that's a major danger. The, the lack of alternatives, the, the feeling of no political horizon in general is very characteristic of the times that we're living in right now. And so the fact that the left is in this position that it is in in Germany is particularly depressing and worrying. But there's also geopolitically not that many alternatives, right? Sort of like if I consider what would happen if Germany becomes, you know, a kind of rogue state again, there would be no kind of who what's the what's the counterpole to sort of authoritarian strongman politics and a and a kind of illiberal either democracy or not and so i think the challenge of the left i mean or the opportunity i don't know i think we just we can't be doing worse than we're doing frankly in terms of like building something here in the in in the german context and i do think that Part of the reality of austerity politics and a dependence on the state for funding for all of our sort of civil society, culture, and all these things is that, you know, if we want to build alternative structures, 
That's always seemed to me like an invitation for neoliberal politics, where you outsource responsibility to like mutual aid and, and various self-organized initiatives. But it does feel that in the face of authoritarianism, that is the only option we have. And so there is also, I think, a great yearning and appetite for a more serious left in the sense of not just wanting to be right, but also wanting to win, hold the space and do those things. And I think, you know, starting with distinguishing between disagreement and harm and having a better error culture in order to actually make the left appealing and strengthen that for people to see it as a viable alternative. All these things are being discussed and um, there's kind of more political activity than there has been in a long time and more political movement and also more political pushback and organizing. So that's always exciting, even though I think the sort of threat of like winning a battle and losing the war, I'm superstitious about that and also superstitious about where does one go to live well if Trump wins in the US and if things go sour in all these European states? It does feel like we're sort of accelerating to a place where we'll have to make some some tough uh, decisions and get very serious about organizing and self-organizing. And I think that the potential for Jewish migrant solidarity is obviously here and very important for Jews of, you know, I think of all political persuasions, I would hope, but like, you know, the the left-wing Jews were not going to do well <laughs> under the IFD. And the anti-left sentiment and also uh, violence in the IFD's program, because you could even see this in that uh, explosive piece on the secret conversations they're having about deporting foreigners, they're just boasting about how they go after leftists. And like, we are, the left are, you know, we're also an endangered minority in that context. So I hope we can like, grow our base beyond the divisions that exist to to fight that battle. Well, Emily Disher-Becker, thank you very much. Thank you. Thank you for listening to The Dig from Jacobin Magazine. As Marx once said, after noting that the tradition of all dead generations weighs like a nightmare on the brains of the living. While other podcasts have only interpreted the world in various ways, our point is to change it. We're posting new episodes every week. The Dig was produced by Alex Lewis. Our associate producer is Jackson Roach. Music by Jeffrey Brodsky. Our communications coordinator is Sylvia Atwood. Our senior advisors are Theorio Francos and Ben Maybe. Check our vast archives and newsletters at thedigradio.com. Follow us on Twitter and also now Instagram at thedigradio. And please do find us wherever you get podcasts and subscribe to this podcast. If it is on iTunes or another such site, please also rate and review us. Those reviews help introduce us to new listeners. But what really does that is you spreading the word to your friends. Please make propaganda for us. And do find us at patreon.com and make a monthly or annual contribution to keep this operation up and running strong. Even a few bucks is huge.